Let's go ahead and pray together. Well, Lord, we sing of some wonderful truths uh, today. I pray, Father, that they would mean to all to us that they that they should. Uh, Lord, as we reflect on the cross of Jesus and the power of that cross to, to save us, such a precious thing, Lord, that we can be together and sing and admonish one another. Lord, warn one another through our singing the importance of the gospel, the importance of Jesus in our lives. Um, Lord, let it let it please resonate with all of us. And I pray, Father, for your word now as it goes out. Help me to deliver it to your people. Give them ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> as I said, we'll pick up from this morning's um, message. So if you, if you guys could have that back up there, thank you. And I'll just start, work back through here to uh, catch us up. I don't have control over this right now. I need y'all to help me out. All right, so there we go. So we talked about what is a church this morning, and then I went through most of the second point, are you a church member, that second question. We talked about the uh, universal church being what is required to be a member of the universal church. Uh, And I presented two things to you, a calling, the general call of the gospel, and then the effectual call of God working to draw us to himself. And then I also uh, shared with you conversion. Every person that's a part of the universal church is a person who has been converted. They've repented and been converted uh, to uh, Christ. And we talked about some of what that means uh, here, uh, not only from Acts 20, verse 21, but also from Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Um, And then we began to talk about what is required to be a member of the local church. Now, I'm presenting some things to you that um, are obviously from Scripture. When you go to various congregations, different churches have different things which they require to be a member of that congregation. So I'm not trying to look at what every congregation believes you have to do or be in order to be a member. What I'm trying to do is present to you what the New Testament at least says uh, ought to be true of an individual for them to be a member of a local church. Um, So kind of working through that, we talked about community, being a part of the community which uh, where that local church exists. Uh, Next is conversion. And that's another thing that I think probably came out of the Reformation is a regenerate church membership. Regenerate church membership. That means people who are a part of a church, local body of members, ought ought to be born again. They ought to be converted. Uh, So regeneration is another way of saying be born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again. And with that, we talked about baptism and the the importance of baptism as this public declaration, this this sign, whatever, however you want to term it. But we looked at some passages that show the significance of baptism 
as the thing that Jesus Christ has given to the church, which they are, which believers are to do. Men and women naturally want to do something. That's one of the reasons why uh, so the sinner's prayer and uh, those types of things came into the church is because people want to do something in response to the gospel. And uh, while there are people who are saved through those means because God converts them. The thing that the New Testament has for believers to do in response to repentance and faith is is be baptized. Um, And then we went to confession. Now, you might ask, what does this have to do with church membership, being a member of the local church? The reason I say confession is, let's go ahead and turn to these two passages. 1 Timothy 6. This is probably one that will model this for us a little bit, and then we'll turn to Hebrews 10, verse 23. But 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11. Paul, of course, writing to Timothy. We'll notice the word confession in here a couple of times. But he says at verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. So that's what he is to pursue. Verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called. Remember that effectual calling to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Apparently uh, having something to do with Timothy's conversion. Verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which He will manifest in His own time. He who is blessed, the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Why did I put confession here and why did I use this passage? The reason is because Timothy had a confession that he made at his salvation, apparently at his time of conversion. But then in verse 14, Paul tells him, keep this commandment without spot. So what happened with Timothy was not a one and done. It was an event that occurred in the past but had a continual effect in his life. So his salvation and the gospel kept making a difference in his life. And and Paul is telling him here that it ought to keep this commandment. So it's not something that was just done then, but it's to keep, keep happening. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know how my voice is going to hold up right now. Hebrews 10. 
verse 23. <clears throat> Y'all got it? If y'all got it, would you say amen? So he says here, you know, um, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Then if you go to the end, verse 39, he writes to these Hebrews who were wavering. They were having a hard time being Christians. But he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So here, here's the deal. I, I present this to you, confession, as being required to be a part of the local church because uh, if you're going to be a member of a local church, you ought to keep believing the things that you once believed. And those things ought to keep making a difference in your life. And the wonderful thing about it is, in the church, we are to help one another do that. Now, if you go back in Hebrews 10 to verse 24... After he says this about it in 23 about holding fast our confession, then he says in 24, and let us consider one another. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see why? assembling is so important we assemble as a church because we need each other we need each other to hold our confession because we're not just looking out for ourselves but we're looking out for each other considering one another because you want me to continue in the faith and i want you to continue in the faith so we help one another do that as much as we can as much as it's dependent upon man we know that ultimately we are preserved in Christ. So I'm not saying those things aren't real. We obviously know that. But there is an aspect of our faith where we need one another. And we must continue and persevere. So confession. And then the last one is communion. <clears throat> communion. Um, in communion, you will think of this in two different aspects. One of them is in communion as far as the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Um, we continue in this practicing the ordinances uh, rightly, correctly, as we would hope. Um, because this fellowship in, the, in communion, this partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus, is a representation of our continued holding fast to our confession. So it's kind of just like baptism is that physical expression of a spiritual reality. When we take the bread and we take the cup on a monthly basis and churches do it at different times, different, different, different amounts of times throughout the year. But when we take that, what we're saying in that is that I still believe this. I'm still following Christ. I'm still trusting in him as my savior and as the Lord of my life. He is the one that I hope in. We have a hope in the gospel and there is a physical manifestation or expression of that when we take the Lord's Supper because we remember His death until He comes. We take the bread, we take the cup. So, I've given some scriptures there, 1 Corinthians 10, 17 and then 11, 31. Now, the other aspect of communion is fellowship. This is something that is uh, evident in the early church in Acts chapter 2. 
<clears throat> I don't know how I'm going to how I'm going to make it. But I'd like to ask you to turn to Ephesians 4 and verse 16. <clears throat> Anybody has a cough drop you'd be willing to throw my way, I would take one. If y'all don't mind. <clears throat> Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, so in Ephesians 4.16... Um, this sort of, I think, expresses this fellowship, the need that we have for one another. <clears throat> if you look here, and this is in the context of one of those passages about spiritual gifts in the church, <clears throat> the importance of us doing our part in a local congregation. So in verse 16, um, to cut to the chase and just get to that verse, you'll notice what, he, what is written. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. All right? So this is given the picture of a physical body. Every joint in the body does its part. <clears throat> so verse 16, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Okay? Um, co- communion or this fellowship or our being a part of the body, the church, is required to be a part of a local congregation because, because what you have to offer to the church is needed for all of our growth so that we become the mature perfect man in Christ that Jesus wants us to be. So I use that as far as communion goes. That, that's required, that's necessary to really be a part of a local congregation. So whether you're here or at another church one day or wherever the Lord might lead you to be, uh, as a Christian, <clears throat> you need to be in communion. Not only with the Lord, trusting in Him, holding fast to the gospel, but in communion with the fellow believers, doing your part in that church for the church's good. I hope that makes some sense. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go now to our last question. Is church membership biblical? You'd be surprised how many times this question comes up. And it's something that uh, New Life, well, used to be a, quite an issue here. Back uh, 15 years ago or more, <clears throat> or even less than that, actually. Uh, there would be folks who would attend New Life Baptist Church for a long period of time and not ever join the church. Um, and it's that's been something that's just come up in, in different circles, whether it's here or uh, other folks dealing with that. So there, there's not a scripture in, in the Bible where you're going to turn to, and it says that churches should have a... Uh, church membership row. Uh, you're, you're not, I don't know where you're going to find that. If you know where that is, then please let me know, but I'm not aware of it. <clears throat> but I want to answer the question again with some questions. So the first one is this. Are we members, are we members of one another? The, the, the answer to that question is yes. And just the, the very fact that we are members of one another in the body of Christ, and that word is used very often, members, 
then that tells us something about the importance of knowing who is who. If you'll turn to Ephesians 4.25. Ephesians 4.25. Here, the Scripture says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And then the last part of it, For we are members of one another. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Showing some passages here about where the, where this word members is used. First Corinthians six verse fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. So this showing that we, as individual believers, are members of Christ. Now, if you would go with to First Corinthians twelve. <clears throat> First Corinthians 12. Y'all got that? If you got it, would you say amen? First Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then to uh, verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. Alright, now to verse 20. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Then he goes through and lists some of the different body parts, the eye, the head, the feet, in verse 21. Uh, The weaker parts being necessary in verse 22. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable on these, we bestow greater honor. Uh, Verse 26 He says, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Uh, So, chapter 6, we are members of His body. Here, we are, are, there's one body, but there's many members. Then he says, to the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ. And members individually. And then in verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church. And then he lists some various spiritual gifts that are found there. So, Paul, if he was writing to New Life Baptist Church, he could say to New Life Baptist Church, You are the body of Christ. So, we are members of one another, and we are members of the, of the body. <clears throat> now, another question that I would ask is this Is the purity of the church important? Is the purity of the church important? If you go to Matthew chapter 18, you might uh, recognize Matthew 18 here as the chapter, you know, where uh, Jesus talks about the uh, church discipline or dealing with a sinning brother. And in this particular uh, portion, we find... How to deal with a brother who sins against you. In verse 15. It says go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. All right, and then verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like all the heathen and the tax collectors. So here's what I would say. How, do you, how did Jesus, how are they to know who the church is? If we have a sinning member, do, do we take a sound system and go sit out on the corner and start blasting it out to all the Christians who drive by on a particular day saying so-and-so is sinning and we're bringing them before the church? Do we, is that the way we would handle that? No, that's ridiculous. You know that there's a specific group of people that this is to be told to. If there's a case like that happening here, we don't go down to Wall Highway Baptist Church and tell them or that way, and then Harvest Baptist Church and tell them, but we tell it to the church. So apparently Jesus had in mind here that there's going to be a specific group of people in specific places that these sins or these issues ought to be told to. Okay, so the purity of the church. And now the next one is, should overseers know who is their flock? If you remember last week in Acts chapter 20, Verse 28, you know, Paul told those, um, those elders. Does anybody remember where they were from? The elders, what did you say, Larry? Ephesus, right? Good job. And so in, in Acts twenty twenty eight, he told them that they are to take heed to themselves. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He told those elders from Ephesus to shepherd the church of God that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers over and that is among them. Those elders were not supposed to go and try to shepherd the elders in Thessalonica or in Colossae. They were responsible for the elders there in Ephesus. So... Is it, does it make sense that an elder or pastors ought to know who they are supposed to pastor? Certainly does. All right. And membership in a church clarifies that. If a person is not a, a member of a local congregation, then it's fuzzy about who the elders are to oversee and shepherd. But if they have been presented as membership and are members of a congregation, then those elders are responsible for the souls of those individuals. Next is, might a majority ever be needed? All right, Might a majority vote ever be needed in a congregation? And the answer to that is yes. We actually only see this that I'm aware of in the church in Corinth. But we see two cases here where the word majority is used. And apparently, the majority was reached because there was some sort of vote. And the reason Paul could say, by the majority, is because um, they voted. They somehow voted and the majority ruled. Now... Let's look at this and see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verse 6. You might be aware and remember that this is in the context of the sinning, the man who was in sin, sexual immorality. 
And he had been turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh by the Apostle Paul. And the church was to judge him as well. They had done so. Now the man comes back having repented of his sin, um, which is always the goal of church discipline, is restoration. It's not to punish. It is to restore. All right. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. All right. So it, it, it did. It, it was punishment in that it was discipline in order to bring about this restoration. But he says it was inflicted by the majority. How do they know it was by the majority? Because the majority of the people somehow said, yes, we agree with this. All right. Now, the other place, and I just discovered this one just the other day. I'd never even noticed it before. But in 2 Corinthians chapter two, chapter 9, verse 2. Now, Second <clears throat> Corinthians 9, verse 2. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which I boast to, of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal was stirred up by the majority. So again, I uh, don't know everything that was going on here, but apparently it was obvious that the majority of the people in the, in the congregation in Corinth were in favor of this uh, offering. The reason they knew who the majority was is because they knew who the church was. If they didn't know who the church was, then it would have been impossible to know who the majority was. And this goes back to baptism. How did they know who should have been a member of the congregation? Well, they had repented, they had believed, they were baptized. Those people who were in that number, were a part of the church in Corinth, and then they, they apparently had some sort of vote. All right, next. Was there not a list of widows? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, here is some great instruction. I'm looking forward to actually preaching through this one of these days. But the Bible tells us how widows are to be cared for in the church. We, again, looked at this just briefly, parts of it a couple weeks ago. But in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 9, um, he says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Does anybody have a different translation than that, or does everybody say number right there? Anything any different? Okay. Be enrolled. Is that what the ESV says? So let them not be enrolled. So do you see here how there was some sort of list of widows who were really widows? And those who were really widows were to be taken care of by the church. They knew who they were. Taken into the number. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, next. Our name's not written in the book of life. Philippians 4, 3. And there are other verses that we could look at on this, but I've just chose this one. Um, Philippians 4, verse 3. 
<clears throat> talking about um, Euodia and Syntyche, these two uh, gospel workers in the church, these two women who had labored in the gospel. Um, and he, he says, I urge you also, verse 3, true companion, help these women who labored in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They've been written down in the book of life. That, you know, also in, Philipp, in Philippians chapter 3, it talks about our citizenship is in heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. Our names are on that roll there. And if the church is a miniature, uh, miniature is not even the right word to use, of, of what we find in heaven, then it would make sense that there is a, a specified role. And then the last one, our name's not written in heaven. Now, maybe this is the same thing, but this is a great passage. If you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 20. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. This is, this is fascinating with the 70 that are sent out here. And I'll read 17 through 20 because I think it will be for your edification. <clears throat> it says there in Luke 10, 17, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now notice what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So, while I can't point you to a specific passage saying that you've got to be presented as a member of a local church, to, to me, at least anyways, these are some com compelling points or questions to ask when it comes to this issue because we really see that this is the order of things in God's Economy, and it ought to be the order of things in the church as well. Anybody have anything to contribute on that? Do you see something that I missed? Dennis? Yeah. Right, it would have been a lot clearer then because it, they would have been converted and baptized and you're part of the church. You're part of that local church because there there wasn't a church on every corner then like it is now. Yep. Anybody else? Alright, so this is setting us up for <clears throat> what I'm, God willing, planning on starting next week in a little study on 3 John. What kind of church member are you? And we'll uh, get back together next Sunday morning and look at that. Alright, that's all I've got for you. We'll be dismissed then with a word of prayer.
We'll sing the doxology too as we end. No, let's sing praise the Savior. Let's do that one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As it has gone out in weakness, Lord, um, your word is not weak. And we trust that it will accomplish all that it's supposed to today. Knowing that that powerful gospel of Jesus Christ that has formed this church is will continue to do its work to convert us, to convert sinners to, to you. And Lord, again, I pray for any who today knows they are lost in their sin and, and they need Christ. Lord, I pray they will run to him in repentance and faith today. For those who do not need, know that they need Him, Lord, I pray, oh God, have mercy upon their souls and help them to see their need for Jesus Christ. In His name I pray, amen.